good to see everybody. I'm Dave Silvernail. For those of you that I haven't met, and we are glad that you are here. Our text uh, for this morning comes from Exodus. We are beginning a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're spending the first two weeks on the preface, as we saw in our responsive reading this morning. So let me read that for you, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Please listen carefully as this is the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we do need it. We need to be reminded of what makes you so great. We need to be reminded that Exodus, and this part of Exodus, isn't just history, but it's redemption. And we need a redemption story. Thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. Thank you that the commandments point us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. Give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you and hearts to understand you so that we may turn back to you in faith and repentance and our souls may be healed. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us listen to Jesus this morning. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Well, no matter where you live, no matter what you do every day, there is one thing you do all day long. You speak. From the first, is it time to get up already, to the final, good night, I got to get some sleep, you speak. In the bedroom, bathroom, hallway, and kitchen, you speak. To your spouse, children, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, you speak. In the car, the store, the office, the classroom, you speak. It's what people do. Almost without interruption and often without a thought about how important it is for our daily life. The ability to communicate is one of the things that separates us from the rest of creation. We are people and therefore we speak. We need to recognize how wordy our lives really are. Now, the word speak itself doesn't seem to really carry the freight for all this importance. Speak seems normal, ordinary, unimportant, harmless. Yet there are a few things we do that are more important. And underneath the normality uh, of it all, there's a great struggle, a war of words that we fight every day. See, words are powerful and important and significant, and it was meant to be that way. When we speak, it has to be with the realization that God has given our words significance. He's ordained for words to be important. Words were significant at creation. Words were significant at the fall. Words are significant to redemption. God has given words value. And so he has a design for our communication, a specific plan and purpose for the words of the body of Christ. There is a solid biblical foundation for understanding our communication by starting where we first hear words spoken, moving to the fall where we see the part words play in this 
uh, event, and finally, considering words from the vantage point of redemption. All the words in the world are related to these events, and understanding that will orient us to the significance of our words, the reasons we struggle so much with them, and the design that God has for the words of his people. You don't really understand the significance of words until you realize that the first words that human ears ever heard were not the words of another human being, but the words of God. The value of every piece of human communication is rooted in the fact that God speaks. Into the sights and sounds of this newly created world came the voice of God, speaking words of human language to Adam and Eve. When God chose to reveal himself this way, he raised words to the place of highest significance as his primary vehicle of truth. So through words, we would come to know the most important truths that can be known, truths that reveal God's existence and glory, truths that give life. And as we seek to understand the value of words, it's vital that we understand it from God's perspective, from the point of view of Genesis 1, the only time where there were no war of words. The Genesis 1, the world was a world of peace and truth and love and life. Uh, that was about to change, but at the beginning, words were never used as weapons. Truth was never used to tear down. Words were spoken in love, and human speech never broke the bonds of peace. It's a world that can teach us a lot about communication. God reveals himself, his plans, his purposes in words. Immediately after creating Adam and Eve, God spoke to them. It was his choice to reveal himself, to define his will, to give identity to Adam and Eve by means of human language. All other means of his uh, revelation, self-revelation, were explained and defined by this, speaking. God, the sovereign creator and Lord, spoke to Adam and Eve in words that they could understand. That's amazing. Stop and think about that for a moment. There's a, a wonder to that. The infinite and almighty God makes himself knowable and understandable through human language. From the moment of creation, God's not distant or aloof. He's not hiding in silence. He comes near and uses words to reveal himself and to explain everything else. God is not just a God who does. He is a God who speaks powerfully, consistently, elaborately, comprehensively, and clearly. Every phase of his work is marked by words. God's speech is lovingly designed to address the need of the moment in simple words that we can understand. Before he works, God reveals what he's going to do. As he's working, God speaks about what he's doing, and when he's finished, God explains what he's done. It's simple communication. I remember learning that as a second lieutenant in the Army. Tell him what you're going to do. Tell him what you're doing. Tell him what you've done. God does that. He's a God who can be known because he's a God who speaks. 
And through his words, God defines his character, his will, his plan, his truth. And we have all sorts of words in the scripture that describe God. Rock, sun, fortress, shield, shepherd, father, judge, lamb, door, master, water, bread. All explaining different aspects of God and who he is and what he's done. And we get so familiar with it and we just kind of forget that it's important. We, we just sort of gloss over its significance. But these are the words by which we come to know the King of kings and Lord of lords. You can't understand communication without starting here. With the glory of God and his amazing grace in revealing himself in terms that we can understand. So God's words not only define him, they define his creation as well. They give identity and purpose to everything that God has created. We only know ourselves when we listen to the words that God has spoken about us. God tells us who we are, defines what we should do and how we should do it. And we couldn't discover those things on our own. The only hope for Adam and Eve was that God would speak to them, give them identity and purpose and make sense out of the world in which they've been placed. God's words set boundaries and give freedom. They create life and bring death. God created speaking and his first words demonstrate their significance. In God's economy, words are not cheap. They reveal, define, explain, and shape. They direct our ex existence and control our relationships. When we come to know other people through words, through conversation, and we want to be alone when we've heard too many words, and we feel alone when uh, it's been a while since anyone has spoken to us. So in creating us with the ability to speak, the ability to communicate, God's not only set us apart from the rest of creation, he's determined the nature of our lives and our relationships. You want to learn, you have to listen and speak. You want to have a relationship, you have to listen and speak. Get a job, listen and speak. Come to worship, listen and speak. Parent your children, listen and speak. Contribute to the body of Christ, listen and speak. Words affect everything that we do as human beings. God created our speaking and gave it value. Now, all of that is good to know. God has created us for relationship, and that relationship is carried out through speaking and listening. God speaks and we speak. God listens and we listen. However, all of that is incredibly easy to take for granted. And in the history of Israel, that happened multiple times. They took God's words for granted. And in so doing, they took God for granted. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over very well with God. God reacts to getting taken for granted pretty dramatically. And one of those times came in the 8th century B.C., when the value of God's word was lost. And so he sent them a prophet. So turn with me to the book of Amos. It's in all those little books at the end of the Old Testament. Flip through there, you'll find it. If you're in like, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you're going to have to go right. If you get to the Gospels, go back to your left. But we're going to go to Amos chapter 8. And we're going to look at the lost word. 
So this is a long way around of getting to Exodus, but we'll get there, I promise. You see, eight centuries before Christ, the northern kingdom of Israel was confident. True, their moral standards had crashed, and there was little honesty left in their business dealings, and poor people were treated poorly, and upper-class depravity was common. But there's a trade boom on, and money's flowing into the country, and society as a whole was affluent. Sounds a lot like Loudoun County. How could anybody be worried with such prosperity? And unlike us, Israel had a national faith. Church attendance was high. Worship is a recognized part of community life. Israel had absolutely no doubts that God was on her side. And into this complacent community, God drops a bombshell in the form of this outspoken farmer. His name was Amos. And Amos comes storming into Israel as a prophet of doom. He says, God's about to judge his people. And he's already warned you because there's been a bunch of disasters. There was a drought, poor harvest, there was an epidemic, and an earthquake. And clearly showing God's displeasure, and these are just the beginning. He tells them soon, the nation is going to be enslaved and deported. And that would actually happen in 50 years, so there's still time to repent. But none of those are the worst thing. Sound like pretty bad things, you know, drought and epidemic and earthquake. But those aren't the worst things. That's still to come. And the worst thing is that God is going to stop speaking to them. Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. To appreciate how serious this is, we have to remember that Israel, as the covenant people of God, had been promised guidance by divine revelation whenever it was needed. God had sent a succession of prophets, uh, men with his word in their mouths who could give direction to Israel in times of confusion and uncertainty. And down through Old Testament history, God had fulfilled this promise. He gave Israel a host of prophets, great and small people, a lot like Amos. But now Amos is declaring as an act of God's judgment, God is going to bring this whole prophetic ministry to an end, at least as it affects the northern kingdom of Israel. And those who would not listen to the prophets when God sent them would soon discover there would be no prophets to listen to at all. And so we read Psalm 74. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. The prophet Micah comes with a similar message, Micah 3. Therefore it shall be night to you, without vision, and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. 
However much men would want or need a word from the Lord, they would not be able to find one. Amos pictured the scene that would result in the rest of the chapter and throughout the book of spiritual destitution, restless, frantic people would just sort of wander around distractedly all over the country, listening to everything that's being said in hopes that somehow they would hear God speak and they would listen in vain. Their hearts were hungry for the Lord and their hunger was going to go unsatisfied. The word of the, of the Lord would be truly lost. I think Amos is a prophet for today. His words show us the present state of Christianity. His vision of spiritual starvation very much pictures ours. The famine of hearing the words of the Lord is the present experience of a great part of the church, particularly in the West. At no time since the Reformation have Christians as a whole been so unsure, tentative, and confused as to what they should believe and do. Christian faith and practice is simply lacking among all denominational lines. And quite frankly, the non-denominational churches have proven they're experts at producing shallow theology and nominal faith. And the good ones admit that. For three generations at least, the churches of the West have suffered from a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And for us too, the word of God has been truly lost. We have forgotten, to quote Francis Schaeffer, that we have a God who is there and he is not silent. God does not want us to forget that. He gave us the entirety of Scripture to keep us from forgetting that. We're never again to open the Scripture without realizing that in these words, God has spoken. That's the next blank. In your outline, the lost word and God has spoken. And this brings us to our text for today, Exodus 20, verse 1. Now, verse 2 explains the situation and the circumstances and the relationship in which God's law is given to God's people. Last week, Jonathan Dorff spoke about the relationship that God has with his people. But we're going to back up a verse and focus on verse 1, which gives us the context for all of the Ten Commandments. And that context is a context of grace. It's a context of redemption. It's a gospel context. And that will help us to be less suspicious about God's law and authority and rules and rights and wrongs and all the things that people don't like today. And so that brings us to the most important part of the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. And that's given to us in the very beginning, in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying. See, in our attempt to get to the good stuff, we just rush over these words like there were some kind of ancient copyright notice. You know, we flip past the title page to get to the first chapter. That's a big mistake, because these words tell us who is speaking. Not knowing what God has said, we feel perfectly free to revise his commandments to fit our 21st century uh, worldview. And so these verses that serve as an introduction to the Ten Commandments are absolutely essential for understanding what God's going to say in verses 3 through 16. 
where we get all the commandments. You won't understand them unless you understand what God is saying here. In fact, I want to suggest that verse 1, all by itself, supplies you with all the motivation you need for being obedient to God's commands. It's a pretty big statement. Because you know, you're looking at verse 1 and saying, Dave, there's not much here. I mean, it just says, and God spoke all these words, saying. But stop for a minute. First of all, notice the end of Exodus 19. Moses has stopped speaking. Moses is not the one who's mediating these words to the people of God. God himself is going to speak the Ten Commandments to the people of God in Exodus 20. And so we're being reminded this is God speaking. God himself is giving the commands. It's a beautiful way to stress that what he is about to command is his will. It's not Moses' will. It's not the collected tradition. It's not the ideas of men. This is the will of God. God himself is essentially saying, Moses, step aside. I'm going to speak directly to my people. <clears throat> it's pretty interesting to see what happens. <clears throat> the people hear God. They've already told Moses, let God speak. We'll do whatever he says. It'll be great. And then God speaks and gives them the commandments. And at the end of the chapter, they say, Moses, don't ever do that again. We can't hear the voice of God. We will die. They tremble when God speaks. I'm not sure we do that anymore. <clears throat> God himself speaks the commandments. And our obedience to those commandments is strengthened when we take into account the fact that it is absolutely, positively his will for our lives. You know, sometimes it's hard to obey what God's called us to do. You could find yourself in a situation where you have to take a risk. Move, change a job, make some big decision. And you're afraid it would backfire on you, that it might not work out. And we get faced with that kind of situation and we want to know the outcome and we don't usually know what's going to happen. And it's important for us to remember that here in these commandments, this is God's will for each one of us. It's not made up by somebody else. It's expressing exactly what God wants. You know, there's times in life you don't know what the will of God is. You don't know how God's going to work things out. Maybe you got a sick kid. You don't know what God's plans are for that child. But in this instance, when it comes to the commandments, you know exactly what God's will is. God's will is that you live this way. God's will is that you behave this way. And how did Jesus tell us to pray? Thy will be done. Now, you know, as I said, sometimes it's hard to pray, thy will be done. You have no idea what that's going to be. And so that's difficult to do. But here, you know exactly what God's will is. So you can pray, Lord, thy will be done. And thank you that I know exactly what that is. 
Thank you that you have spelled it out in your words here in these commandments. And we have a tendency in our own day and time to question authority. And God meets that head on by making it clear what he wants us to do. He makes it clear by speaking all these words himself directly to his people both then and now. That's the first thing we learn in this passage. Our obedience to God's will is strengthened when we realize this is exactly what he wants us to do. This is his will and nobody else's. That's one of the first things we learn here from verse 1. And that all comes from, and God spoke all these words, saying. Who is speaking here? God. What did he say? All these words. Where did the Ten Commandments come from? God. These are not the ten suggestions for your best life now. Ten things you should consider. The ten habits of highly successful people. The ten ways to climb the ladder are ten ideas that might work for you. God spoke all these words. Therefore, they have lasting moral authority. God spoke all these words. We don't have to wonder about his intentions. We can understand what he says. God spoke all these words. Therefore, we have to take all of them with utter seriousness. We don't get to pick and choose. It's not a best of seven event or anything like that. And finally, God spoke all these words. We have to give these words our primary attention. And each week this summer, we're going to take these commandments one at a time and see us how they move us in the direction of pleasing God. Many years ago, James Montgomery Boyce, a well-known PCA pastor from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, summarized what Christians believe about the Bible and its authority by saying this. He said, God has spoken and he did not stutter. That's a pretty profound, radical claim. We believe that God has spoken to us in the Bible and he spoke in such a way we can know what he says. That claim stands directly against uh, relativism and the relativistic spirit of this age that people say nobody can really know the truth. It's not at all what the Bible says. One journalist, Christine Adone, uh, she writes for one British newspaper, but uh, the Daily Telegraph, but this article was actually in the Manchester Guardian uh, back in 2003. And she said this, she's a believer, and she said, we believe in authority. In an era that prizes individual freedom, Christians believe in a supreme being who dictates words and deeds. To modern ears, the concept sounds outrageously autocratic. From when to die to when to give birth, to whom to have sex with, how to spend your money, the cultural elite believe that they should enjoy unlimited freedom. But for the Christian, freedom is not an end in itself. Unfettered individualism means greed and selfishness. The evasion of personal responsibility, the destruction of the family. Christians believe that from an all-powerful authority stems a clear system of judgment which teaches us that there is a right and there is a wrong. I wonder if that paragraph was printed in the post 
this week what kind of reaction they would get. I think it would be pretty interesting. Probably wouldn't be able to repeat it in church. But you realize something now. We, we've skipped a step. Because something has to happen between God speaking his commandments and us obeying those commandments. And that missing step is the one where we have to listen. And we have to listen. And we're going to go to a bunch of verses here and a couple in Isaiah in particular. But the first thing we have to know is that listening and hearing are not the same thing. As any mom can tell you. Because mom knows that her child heard her. The sound of her voice went into that kid's ears, but it had no effect. Because the child wasn't listening. Now, there's a rumor that this happens with husbands, too. But it's just a rumor. (laughs) But I want to argue it's just a rumor. I want to argue that listening is what bridges the gap between hearing and doing. Specifically, it bridges the gap between hearing God's word and doing God's word. And in relation to our text today, listening heals this rift between God speaking his commandments and our obeying those commandments. Now, in the New Testament, hearing and doing are pitted against each other almost as bitter rivals. Like, Hearing and doing are like the Alabama and Auburn of the New Testament. You can't like them both, not and live in that state. And almost every state has some comparable thing. I was so glad when I pastored there that they played on Saturday, because then if they played on Sunday like the pros do, I would have like three people in church. But hearing and doing are rivals. You know, Romans, the Apostle Paul, Romans 2. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. James tells us, he warns us about hearing without doing. James chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Jesus himself concludes the Sermon on the Mount, the great, greatest sermon in like the history of ever, By saying, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So how does listening bridge this gap between hearing and doing? Well, I learned something new. Um, The words listen and obey have the same root. And that's true in Latin and Greek and Hebrew, three very different languages. The word we translate into English as obedience literally means listening from below. I thought that was pretty cool. 
The biblical scholar Scott McKnight reports the word listen appears in the Bible over 1,500 times. And the most frequent complaint in the Bible is that people won't listen. Isaiah 48 is particularly scathing. Isaiah is speaking to the people and he says, You have never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that when you, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. When your ears are closed, you do not obey God, and you are called a rebel. Now, to be honest, the Bible doesn't always sharply distinguish between hearing and listening. Although I think probably more in the prophets than anywhere else. For example, also the Isaiah chapter 6, the great call of Isaiah, it says, I heard the voice of the Lord was saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wouldn't it be great if God just spoke to us? Just verbally, audibly told you what he wanted. There's great examples of the Bible of God doing that. He spoke to Hosea. That was awesome. He told Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. And Hosea was like, I, I, that's, that's really not God's will. <laughs> He's like, oh, yes, it is. My favorite is actually Isaiah. Because first of all, he gives this great command to Isaiah. This is what I want you to say. And Isaiah says, for how long? Thinking, you know, a couple weeks and then I'll get to the good stuff. And he's like, basically until everybody dies. And then he says, and I want you to do something really special for me, Isaiah. Take off all your clothes and walk around the city for three years. And then after three years, you can put your clothes on and say, this is what God is going to do. And actually it says, as I've bared your buttocks, I'm going to bear the buttocks of these people over here and they're going to be defeated. And I was like, that would be just great. <laughs> you know, we don't have that many examples of God speaking directly to people and at least half of them are scary. And there's a reason that most of the time if God speaks to somebody, the next reaction is they're face down in the dirt, please don't kill me. But we learn from Isaiah because of what he tells them that it is possible to hear without understanding. So listening is more accurately described as hearing with understanding. Hearing is one of our senses. It centers on our ears, and the brain processes sound waves. It's involuntary. It's momentary. Listening is something we choose. Listening is a practice of focused attention. Hearing is an act of the senses. Listening is an act of the will. 
We all listen to certain voices. So the question isn't, will I listen, but who will I listen to? And we often say seeing is believing, but in the Bible, listening is believing. The spectacle of the burning bush may have drawn uh, Moses uh, to that spot, but he didn't know he was on holy ground till a voice told him to take off his shoes. In Deuteronomy, Moses is actually retelling the Exodus story to a new generation. And he reminds them, Deuteronomy 4, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. God is invisible. The Westminster Standards teach us that God is a spirit and has not a body like men. Although in the Bible, sometimes God does display himself visually, but his main means of communication is through speech, through words, through language. But God's not speaking to us out of a fire anymore. Most of us haven't seen a burning bush. There's no pillar of cloud going before us. We don't have the whirlwind of Elijah or the personal conversations with God like Abraham, Moses, and Samuel did. So how does God reveal himself to us now in these last days? Well, he reveals himself the way he always has. He speaks. It's precisely what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So we find affirmation of scripture's authority. God has spoken through his written word and ultimately has spoken through his living word, his son. The speaking by a son is unheard of. No other religion makes this claim. But through this, God makes himself known to us. And he doesn't just utter some words or leave a message. He speaks by becoming one of us. We know who we are because we've been created in his image, in the image of the one who became one of us and into whose image we ought to be conformed until that day we see him face to face. Further on in uh, we go to John chapter 1. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. By saying that, it means that flesh, man as a bodily, physical, historical being, comes into fullness when the word becomes flesh. Man is the creation of God speaking. Whatever else we are as frail, failing, sinful people, we are the product of God speaking. And our Lord Jesus who was before us, became one of us. Jesus' entire life is one of God speaking to us. When God's Son enters human history, he lives by God's word, Luke 4. He keeps God's word, John 8. He preaches God's word, Mark 2. The Father gave Jesus words. Jesus gave those words to his followers. His followers received those words, John 17. Those who heard Jesus were amazed at all his words. They were hanging on every word. They marveled at his gracious speech. They recognized his works possessed unique authority. Luke 4, 19 and Mark 10. And because of all of that, and I probably got 10 more in here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 begins by saying, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. The clear teaching of Scripture is that we're asked to listen with our lives. And we're not truly listening unless we're responding to Jesus 
with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The beginning of discipleship is listening. At the sound of Jesus' voice, his followers dropped their nets and followed him. Listening begins the process of discipleship. It's what makes us disciples. Those who learn from Jesus, who follow Jesus, and submit to Jesus. So my friends, when you see how this verse, Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, it makes all the difference in the world in how we're going to understand the Ten Commandments for the rest of the summer, that they're going to be spoken and listened to. And I hope as you think about them over this summer, the next three months, as we go through them one by one, that you'll go back to this verse and remembering that we serve a God who speaks. God doesn't want us to forget that. He gave us the entirety of Scripture to keep us from forgetting that. We are never again to open the Scriptures without realizing that in all these words, God has spoken. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you that you have not, thank you that you have saved us by grace and for obedience. We confess that's not where we are. We're not listening. We're not following you with our whole lives. We're easily distracted and we often hear without understanding. Thank you that you sent your son, the living word, to speak to us through his perfect life by your spirit. Help us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Help us pay much closer attention to him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now 
and forever. Amen.